Hello, and welcome to the HE Live podcast. I'm your host, Polly Martin, Senior Reporter for Hydrogen Economist. Hydrogen has seen a surge of interest and investment as a potential route to decarbonize certain sectors, but the actual climate impact of hydrogen in the atmosphere could present a major challenge toward preventing global warming beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. Our guest today, Dr. Elissa Oko, is a senior climate scientist for the Environmental Defense Fund, who has published research which suggests that leakage of hydrogen into the atmosphere could undercut the benefit of displacing fossil fuels, and depending on upstream leakage, even exacerbate warming. Elissa, thank you for coming on to the podcast. To start with, could you walk us through how hydrogen in the atmosphere affects the climate? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. So when hydrogen makes its way into the atmosphere, scientists think that it has two main fates. Around 70 to 75% of the hydrogen is considered to be eaten up by microbes in the soil, where the microbes use the hydrogen for energy. But the remaining 25 to 30% remains in the atmosphere for a couple years on average before it reacts with a naturally occurring compound called the hydroxyl radical. And this is a process that scientists have identified as early as the 1970s. So we've known about this for a while. And when this reaction in the atmosphere occurs, it triggers a series of effects that ultimately increase the amounts of three potent greenhouse gases, methane, ozone in the troposphere, and water vapor in the stratosphere. And so this is basically how hydrogen emissions can lead to warming. But if it's okay, let me unpack these really quickly. So first, methane in the atmosphere is increased because the hydroxyl radical is its main sink. So now there's less hydroxyl radical that is available to react with methane because it's reacting with hydrogen. So this means that the methane lasts longer in the atmosphere, and so it is warming the climate for a longer period of time. Second, the reaction between hydrogen and hydroxyl forms atomic hydrogen. And so when this reaction between hydrogen and hydroxyl occurs in the troposphere, which is the lowest level of the atmosphere down by the surface of the Earth, the atomic hydrogen sets off this chain of chemical reactions that eventually lead to more ozone being formed. And third, the reaction between hydrogen and hydroxyl also produces water vapor. So when, again, this reaction between hydrogen and hydroxyl occurs in the troposphere near the surface of the Earth, there's so much moisture down here that it doesn't really matter that we're adding more water. But when this reaction occurs in the stratosphere, which is the level of the atmosphere above the troposphere and more or less begins around the height where planes fly, this additional water vapor actually makes a big difference as a greenhouse gas. So overall, the latest science suggests that when you combine all of these warming effects from hydrogen, hydrogen emissions can have 30 to 40 times the warming power of carbon dioxide over the following 20 years after both are emitted in equal mass. And when my colleague and I looked into what this means for replacing fossil fuel systems with clean hydrogen alternatives, we found that if emissions of hydrogen from infrastructure are on the upper end of estimates, then we could end up in a situation where clean hydrogen systems are contributing half as much to warming in the following few decades as the fossil fuel systems they are replacing. And this is far from clean hydrogen's current classification as essentially climate neutral. So if we want to maximize climate benefits from hydrogen systems, and especially if we want them to be near climate neutral, 
then we really need to minimize hydrogen emissions as we build out infrastructure to support a growing hydrogen economy. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that part of the, I suppose, kind of the impact of hydrogen in the atmosphere is depleting these kind of methane sinks. So would you say that there is additional risk when it comes to blue hydrogen productions? So additional risk when it comes to leakage of both hydrogen and also kind of methane in the upstream? Yeah, so because hydrogen is very reactive on Earth, it's rarely found on its own, which is why we need to produce it in the first place. And different production methods have different climate impacts. So some have very little and some have very large. So before I get into blue hydrogen, I just want to start by mentioning that 99% of hydrogen that is intentionally made today is what we call gray, brown, or black hydrogen, where we're using fossil fuels like natural gas, oil, and coal as the source of hydrogen because they are all hydrocarbons, but we don't capture the resulting CO2 emissions. And these processes emit so much CO2 that if hydrogen was a country, it would be the sixth largest CO2 emitter. Now, blue hydrogen is when we still use natural gas to make hydrogen, which today comprises 75% of hydrogen production. But now we are capturing the majority of CO2 emissions. And so that's what makes blue hydrogen different from gray hydrogen, because we're capturing a lot of the CO2. But there's two major climate risks. First, not all carbon capture technologies are equal. Some only capture around 65% of emissions, but it is proven that we can design technologies that can capture 95% of CO2 emissions. So it really would be best to require producers to use carbon capture technology that's designed to achieve 95% CO2 capture efficiency or more and have credibly demonstrated long-term storage plans for the carbon. But the second climate risk, which is what you mentioned, is methane. So natural gas is almost entirely methane. And as we just discussed about one of the ways that hydrogen emitted into the atmosphere influences the climate is by making the methane last longer. Methane itself is a potent greenhouse gas. And the natural gas supply chain has been shown to leak throughout all components of infrastructure, and especially upstream and midstream. For example, when we extract the natural gas from underground, and also when we transport it around, natural gas is, it's a small molecule, so it can easily leak. And this leakage of natural gas is a major source of today's warming. So even if we capture almost all of the CO2 emissions from producing hydrogen with natural gas, and this would again be blue hydrogen, this does not do anything about the methane emissions. And our research shows that if both hydrogen and methane emissions are on the upper end of estimates, then blue hydrogen technologies could cause more warming in the following decades than the fossil fuel systems they are replacing. So it's essential that we not only minimize hydrogen emissions, but also minimize methane emissions. But the last thing I want to say is that even if we do, we find that blue hydrogen can have far more climate impacts than green hydrogen, which is when we make hydrogen from water with renewable energy. There is an additional issue with green hydrogen, though. It's not immune to climate risk. And this is because we don't have excess renewable capacity at the moment. Maybe we will someday. But right now, 
we don't want to take renewable electricity away from directly decarbonizing the power grid. And so this is why we need to be really strategic in general about where and when we use hydrogen and not just use it everywhere we can. And so if we can directly electrify systems, we can end up using a lot less energy to power the same tasks like heating a home or powering vehicles, because when we make the hydrogen and then compress it and use it, we end up losing so much of that initial renewable energy. So basically, rule number one is to electrify first and not use hydrogen, and then make sure we're really prioritizing using hydrogen in systems where we already use it and where we have no better alternatives. This includes heavy industry like making materials such as plastic, steel, and cement, and also long-haul transport, including trucks, aircrafts, and ships. I mean, I suppose it's also quite interesting that you mentioned that when the estimates are on the upper end, you might actually see these quite drastic climate impacts. So I suppose when it comes to leakage throughout the value chain, how would you effectively quantify how much hydrogen might get lost to the atmosphere? It's a really great and important question because it turns out we have absolutely no idea how much hydrogen is currently emitted from existing hydrogen operations, let alone what the future holds because hydrogen production could increase by tenfold in the coming decades. And I mentioned that methane, the main component of natural gas, is a really small molecule. It's very leaky. We've seen it leak from all components of the value chain. Well, hydrogen is the tiniest molecule in existence. You could actually fit 500,000 hydrogen molecules side by side in the width of a single strand of human hair. So as you can imagine, it's difficult to contain. And there are plans right now to transport hydrogen around the globe. So that would make for a lot of opportunities for it to escape into the atmosphere. So experts have suggested that anywhere from less than 1% to potentially 20% of hydrogen could be lost from when it is made to when it is used. But really, we have no empirical data, and many of the systems that may exist in the future have yet to be built, as I just mentioned. So these estimates are based on a number of different methods that don't rely on direct measurements. So they use proxies like how much natural gas is leaking and theory of how much hydrogen we would expect to leak compared to natural gas based on its composition. They use numerical modeling methods, but the reality is just that we don't know. So in our research that we published last year and the results that I was quoting in response to one of your earlier questions, we use an upper end of 10%, but we have seen estimates go as high as 20%. And hydrogen is thought to leak from the entire value chain, from the instruments that split apart water molecules to compressors, to pipelines, to fueling stations, to trucks driving over rough roads. So really nothing seems immune. And beyond just fugitive emissions that we don't intentionally want to emit, many industry processes actually intentionally vent and purge hydrogen as part of routine operations. Because hydrogen is also a safety hazard, as we all know, we do have systems in place to monitor large leaks. But the distinction here is that they're large leaks. The technology capable of measuring small leaks isn't yet commercially available. And monitoring for safety isn't sufficient because we're not capturing all the small leaks that would really add up to influence the climate, but not be concerns for human safety. And so without this 
technology, we're unable to measure hydrogen emissions. And this is why we don't have any data. But my organization, Environmental Defense Fund, is working with the company Aerodyne to resolve these challenges. So Aerodyne recently developed a first of its kind hydrogen sensor that is highly sensitive to small levels of emissions, and it acts really fast. So we can find the leaks really quickly and detect them before they kind of diffuse into the atmosphere. So we tested the instrument with Aerodyne over the winter, and it performed really well, which is really encouraging. And so we hope that within the next year, and maybe even within the next six months, we can start collecting hydrogen emissions data to start really putting together this picture of how much hydrogen is emitted and where it's coming from. Yeah, I suppose that's really interesting that you mentioned that, you know, kind of at the moment, it is so theoretical, just thinking about it, you know, you could even add additional kind of steps within that value chain that have potential for leakage, like conversion and reconversion from ammonia or methanol or being carried by liquid organic hydrogen carriers. Would those also have potential for leakage kind of within those steps of the value chain? I suppose it's also kind of one of those things where it sounds like there's increasingly research and development going into technology. But what would you say are some of the measures that need to be in place to actively monitor potential leakage throughout the value chain? Yeah, so there's a number of things we can do. And to quickly answer your first question there, you know, the more we manipulate the hydrogen and move it around, we're just increasing opportunities for it to escape. But another big challenge with converting it into, you know, something like ammonia and then transporting it as ammonia and then converting it back into hydrogen when it gets to its final destination, that requires so much energy and we lose, so we lose a lot of the energy along the way. So it's just not a very energy efficient process. So the fact that we have more opportunities for leakage of hydrogen, we also could leak ammonia, which also isn't good and has its own safety risks. And then we're losing a lot of the energy along the way. This is why we want to be really strategic in how we're using the hydrogen and make sure that there are no better alternatives that could power the same tasks, but be a lot cleaner and more energy efficient and therefore cheaper. In terms of the measures that we can put in place to help us monitor and minimize leakage, of hydrogen throughout the hydrogen value chain, there are a number of steps that we can take now. So the first thing that we really need to do is that it's essential that governments and companies invest in research and development for sensor equipment that's capable of detecting emissions at low levels. For example, for those of you that are familiar with sensor equipment, we're really looking for the 10 ppb level, not parts per million, but parts per billion. And this is because a lot of the times when we're trying to understand the full scope of emissions of hydrogen coming from a certain set of infrastructure or a certain area, then we're not detecting that hydrogen exactly where it's being emitted. And so the hydrogen is really lightweight, so it easily diffuses into the atmosphere. And so we need to be able to detect really small concentrations of the hydrogen. And for the same, a similar reason, we also need fast response times, like being an instrument that's able to detect the emissions every second, for example, so that we're not getting background concentrations, but we're really able to identify when the emissions are occurring. The exciting thing is that we are starting to see governments and companies invest in this and both 
the US and Europe. So that's been really encouraging. When we do have the instruments available, even if it's just for research purposes, we need to test both the leakage detection and emissions quantification technique. And this will require participation of governments and companies in measurement field campaigns. So what we really want to do is encourage participation in these efforts, because that will be really crucial to making sure that we you know, test the equipment and also create the algorithms that are needed to take the raw data from the instruments and turn it into emissions data. And this is something we do for methane emissions, for example, from the natural gas supply chain. And then once we start collecting emissions data of hydrogen from different components, that's when we'll be able to start conducting research to identify leakage mitigation measures and also best practices. That will be important for knowing what we should prioritize as we build out infrastructure so that we really get it right from the start. When the sensors are commercially available, that's when governments should start requiring companies to incorporate plans for monitoring, reporting, and verification, MRV programs, and also leak detection and repair LDAR programs. But governments can also now require that projects incorporate early in their proposals and plans how they will adopt these MRV and LDAR programs when the technologies become available. Another thing that engineers can also do right now is to develop alternative strategies for hydrogen venting and purging operations to limit emissions. For example, with natural gas systems, we see that we don't always need to vent it. There are other options that we have. And so the same insights can be applied to hydrogen. So maybe it made sense to just vent hydrogen into the atmosphere if it didn't do anything. But now that we know that it does have some consequences, we can re-engineer these systems so that they don't vent it. And then also just engineers developing plans to build tight and compact systems that minimize opportunities for leakage. So a lot of that is focused more on the engineering and technology side, but even from an analysis standpoint, it's really important for hydrogen emissions and their near-term warming effects to be incorporated into life cycle assessment tools that are comparing different clean technologies. And eventually, we hope that we can get to a place where we can credibly verify hydrogen emissions from different systems, different companies, different countries, and then establish some sort of 1% or less hydrogen emissions target for project value chains, which would include production, storage, transport, and end use. I mean, I think overall, the great news here is that the hydrogen industry is still in its infancy. So we have an opportunity to ensure that the enormous investment in hydrogen projects worldwide yields the climate and other benefits being sought and minimizes unintended consequences. So I just want to you know, emphasize that hydrogen definitely has a role to play in decarbonization. And while there are climate risks, the ultimate reward if we overcome these risks is achieving our climate goals. Absolutely. I think it's one of those things where these discussions around fugitive emissions, unintended consequences, you know, it's really important to have these discussions now while projects are being designed, while policy is being designed, while regulations are still in kind of the drafting stage. So thank you again, Alyssa, for appearing on this podcast for this really important and enlightening discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe for the latest HE Live episodes. 
And for more news and analysis, be sure to subscribe to Hydrogen Economist and follow us on social media for more updates.